morning. Today's scripture reading is going to be Ephesians 5, 17 through 6, 4. Um, it can be found on page 829 um, in your Bibles in the pews. I think it's going to be up there too. So there you go. Okay. So Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or with any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, our passage in Ephesians is a, is a lengthy passage, um, but I want us to look at it in context um, because so oftentimes what happens, um, even when we, we try to teach verse by verse expositionally is we lose sight of the context and in losing sight of the context we can lose sight of how to apply it properly to our lives to our relationships and how to truly be obedient to the Lord and so I'm going to um, just before we begin I want to spend a, another moment in prayer just asking for the for the Lord to truly speak and and for him to continue what he what he did this week so would you bow your, your hearts with me one more time? Father God, I thank you so very much for your amazing presence, the work that you did amongst um, the young people. Lord, I rejoice over so many spiritual decisions, those trusting you as Savior for the first time, others wrestling with um, understanding their identity in Christ and growing in that understanding. Still more, learning, Lord, just the joy of having intimacy with you, of worshiping you, of delighting in you. Lord, I thank you for what you did during that concentrated time together. I thank you for the wisdom, the insight that you gave to the counselors, the leaders. Thank you, Lord, for the way they were able to listen to your voice and both speak and listen to the students, to the children. Lord, would you do that same thing 
in the larger body of your church here that we call ICP. Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you continue, Lord, to show us more and more what you're like? Lord, for the things that the students, uh, children learned, Lord, I pray that it would continue. And it wouldn't just be a camp high, but Lord, there would be truly a turning point in their lives, a foundation that is built that transforms every moment of their life from that point forward. Lord, I thank you again for the the amazing team, for the leadership, for Ian and Selena, Miranda, for all the counselors that came from from ICP and just the way that they so sacrificed their time for the team from Texas, from Virginia, and from the UK. Lord, it's beautiful to see what happens when your body comes together. We get an accurate picture of you. And Lord, that's what I ask that you would do as we explore this passage of scripture together. So Lord, would you let me get out of the way? Lord, I pray that you would not only help us to understand this, far more importantly, would you help us to live it? In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. When I approach this passage, um, I've been in full-time ministry for a long time. I don't even remember how long. I'd have to do the math, but it's at least 30-some years. Um, and, and I have been guilty of this, and I've certainly seen uh, it others who unintentionally have been guilty of this. We have a tendency to disconnect the passages, in part because of the, the headings that we have in our English text. We look at it like, as if it is a separate subject instead of it being all one address. And in doing so, we run the risk of missing out that this is all simply an outward expression of what happens when the Holy Spirit fills us. That it transforms who we are, how we relate to one another. It transforms our relationships in marriage, in husbands and wives. It transforms the relationships in parenting. It transforms, as we'll look at next week, our relationships in the workplace. We need the Holy Spirit in every one of those relationships. And and the point that I made last week that I just want to reiterate is simply this. The practice of God-honoring relationships must be Holy Spirit-powered. If we simply try to apply the principles without being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, most likely we will fail. And I had an illustration partly because I was incredibly tired for some reason this week. Um, And I I had this illustration pop into my head that I think is actually pretty good. It's like decaf coffee. You know? I mean, for me, first of all, when I think of decaf coffee, the first thing that comes to my mind is, why? I mean, what's the point? You know, and, and I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, trying to do spiritual principles without spiritual power is like drinking decaf coffee. It's missing that key ingredient that gives it life. Without that, it's just brown, bitter, hot water. You might as well drink tea. I mean, you know, green tea because it doesn't have caffeine. So, it's, I know, I've, I've now offended all of the tea drinkers. I am so sorry. I drink tea. I really don't drink coffee, so it's merely an illustration. But that's the point. 
We have to have this. And so when we read this, when it says in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it begins to to spell that out, what that looks like in our interactions within the church, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, um, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks um, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to their husbands as to the Lord. And then it goes on, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Chapter 6, verse 5, servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him. All of those commands, and they are commands, come and are powered by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Without him, these relationships won't work. In essence, if you're struggling in a relationship, maybe it's as a family, maybe it's in a marriage relationship, maybe it's a struggle in the workplace. I said, well, look at this more next week. The first thing that we need to pray for is not for God to change the other person. In fact, I believe, it's a strong conviction, that we should never pray that. The only one I should pray that God would change is me. If there's struggle in the relationship, I need to be praying, Lord, would you make me a husband that loves my wife as you, Lord Jesus, love us, the church? That's what I need to pray. And the other part that I need to pray is, Lord, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that my life overflows with the fruit of the Spirit into that relationship? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what every relationship we have needs. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When that's present the other pieces begin to fit in place. When that is present, your relationship will grow closer, whether it's in marriage or in family or even in the workplace, because God's spirit will be with you. There may still be struggles. There may be difficulties because reconciliation always requires both parties or all parties to be working on it together, But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be at peace even if the rest of the circumstances are stormy around you. That is what we need most. It's for the Holy Spirit to fill us. This is what transforms relationships. But spiritual principles, spiritual commands without spiritual power are simply powerless. All right? Here's the truth. This one you might even want to write down. A physical fix to a spiritual void or emptiness will not work. A spiritual, excuse me, a physical fix to a spiritual emptiness will not work. By the way, 
This is why sex by itself does not create intimacy. Intimacy is a spiritual need that God alone can fill. And if we're seeking to simply have a physical approach to meeting a spiritual need, we'll be left empty. And in many cases, because we pursue it in a way that is not in God's design and his instruction, it can leave us even more empty. See, God wants you to be filled. That's why he gives us these instructions, because he wants you to experience an intimacy with him. And that's why even if, uh, if a person um, you know, desires to, to be married, and they think, man, when I get married, I am, I'm going to have intimacy. I'm going to have someone who knows me and loves me and accepts me for who I am. Well, hopefully that's what happens, but it doesn't guarantee it because that need first and foremost has to be filled by God. Another person cannot fill it. God gave us this amazing gift of of physical intimacy to be an expression of becoming one in him. That when a husband and a wife become united in marriage, then they have a way to express that union that has already been created by being united with God and the two becoming one. Then it gives meaning to a physical act that is an expression of that intimacy, not the other way around. Does that make sense? I hope so. Well, the second part of that, and I mentioned this, this last week, is the other reason why I feel it's so important to read this passage in context is to recognize that the Apostle Paul, who's the author here, is also giving us some very beautiful examples of our relationship with God. This is first and foremost about our relationship with God and secondly about the horizontal relationships that we have. It is pictures, living stories, of what our relationship with God is to be like. But what happens is oftentimes, if we experience broken human relationships, it will distort our view of what a relationship with God is like. And that's why it's so important for us as the church, yeah, the fishbowl. Our view of reality is distorted because we don't have an accurate picture of who God is and what he does. And when that happens, Um, will not understand how much he loves us, how to obey him, how to follow his will, how to relate to him. Every other area of our life can be distorted because what we've seen with our eyes does not match what God says he is. And and that's the other point that I, I just want to reiterate one more time. God is who he says he is, not what we think he is. We need an accurate view of God. And so that's why he gives us three pictures in this passage that are all connected together out of the filling of the Holy Spirit, three pictures of our relationship with God. First of all, the picture of marriage is that we have a husband redeemer in Jesus Christ, a savior who gives us intimacy. The deepest need in your heart and my heart is to be known and fully loved. And Jesus Christ proved that he fully loves you. He knows everything about you. Knowing everything about you, he was willing to die on the cross for you. There is no greater expression of love and acceptance than that. Who else has died for you? Who else knows absolutely everything about you? 
every thought, every action, every fear, every failure. And yet he says, I loved you anyway. So much so, I'm willing to give all that I am for you, which is exactly what he did on the cross. And that's why Jesus fulfilled the pictures of the Old Testament of God as a husband redeemer, as it says in Isaiah 54, and he willingly went to the cross for you and I to bring us to a relationship with God. Jesus came to show us the Father and to bring us into an intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now what this passage, in essence, is doing is it's calling you and I to live relationships that will reflect our relationship with God. There's a tendency when we see brokenness in our culture, in our world, when we see um, that, that marriage has been read, uh, redefined or we see relationships and families that are breaking down, there's a tendency within us to say, oh, our reaction should be some kind of litigation, some kind of protest. I believe what Jesus would say is the best way for you to deal with this is to live a better story, is for the church to reflect more accurately what a relationship with God looks like. That's what brings transformation. And that's what we need to do. So um, that's the first picture. The second picture is the picture of parenting, a father to trust. It provides you and I security. God is a father who cares for us and will provide, protect, correct, and promote us. And the third picture is a master and servant, a Lord whom we can serve that gives our life purpose. The Lord is the one who we are to serve, who gives meaning to everything that you do. Those three pictures all show us ways that we relate to God. Well, now let's look some at the, at the specifics. And we dealt with some of this in, in marriage last week, so we're not going to take much time here. And then we'll move on to parenting for a little bit. But um, when the Holy Spirit fills a wife and a husband, he produces a spirit-transformed marriage that is truly one. And the secret of a transformed marriage is not doing more, it is learning to listen more to the truth that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about how to love your spouse and reflecting Christ in your relationship. Remember, he says this is about Christ in the church. He's the example that we're to follow. And the roles that God addresses work when both the husband and the wife are filled with the Spirit out of reverence for Christ and submit to Him and to each other, and here's what it looks like. It actually looks like the verses up above it right afterwards. It says um, in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A spiritually transformed marriage communicates encouragement. Absolute encouragement. The words that you speak to your spouse reflect your true level of worship to God. I want you to think about that. How you treat your wife, if this is a picture of how Christ relates to the church and the church relates to Christ, then how I treat my spouse reflects my true attitude towards God. That should be sobering because I want it to be an accurate picture. And I want my life to be filled with encouragement for my bride. 
just as we're to express encouragement, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which in essence means building up the spirit of one another, that's the first element of a spiritually transformed marriage, is those are the kinds of things we're speaking to one another. Secondly, a spiritually transformed marriage expresses gratitude to God for one another. This is where I would, I would very much caution you, those of you who are, who are married, don't be critical of your spouse. Be thankful. Be thankful for who God gave you. That attitude of gratitude, of thankfulness, will transform your worldview, your, your view of one another. Look for ways to give thanks to the Lord for the one you're married to. Also, a spiritually transformed marriage mutually submits to Jesus and to each other. That's what he tells us in 521, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, not because they deserve it. I don't deserve it, I promise you, but Jesus does. That's where it comes, that's the motivation, and that's the power that gives us to be able to do that. Also, a spiritually transformed marriage practices sacrificial love. Husbands, the, it, Jesus put the, the instruction first and foremost on us. We need to love our wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What that looks like in each circumstance is something you need to continually take to the Lord and say, Lord, show me how to sacrificially love the bride that you've given to me. Also, a spiritually transformed marriage demonstrates respect for God by respecting and serving one another, meeting one another's needs. And here's the thing. When that happens, your marriage will be a living parable, a living story that displays how much God loves us to your children, to your extended family, to your neighbors, to the people that you work with. They'll see something radically different in you that will be a, a platform to help them point to the reason it's different is not because you're a super husband or a super wife, but because you're filled with God and God has loved you so much. And they can experience that same love, that same intimacy with God. So let's look now at the, the picture of parenting because I only have a few minutes left. God is, excuse me, God is a father to trust. He gives us security. Children, verse, uh, verse one of chapter six. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the promise there also applies to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. When we honor our Heavenly Father, then He responds by giving us life. The life that He gives us is eternal life, not just life that's long in years on this earth, but eternal life and relationship with Him. And God has chosen these human relationships to help us understand how we connect with him. 
God is bigger than any of these individual relationships. He is infinite. And so it's difficult for us to understand, God, how do I relate to you when you're infinite and when I am, I'm physical, I'm contained, I'm finite? He's saying these are ways that we can learn to do it. We can learn to trust him as a father who loves us, who believes in us, who promotes us, who builds us up. Now, in practice, for, uh, for, for, uh, and by the way, where it says fathers, um, it do not provoke your children to anger, it, it, um, in the original language, it includes fathers and mothers. So this is addressed to parents. It really is all about parents and children relationship. And we need to understand that God has chosen to reveal um, himself in the form of a relationship to us as a father. That's why it was, it was such an amazing thing when Jesus responds to the disciples and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. He begins with our father who is in heaven. He's instructing us that that's how we're to begin to relate to him is that he is a father who cares for you as his child, who's been adopted, who has every right as a son and a daughter fully in him when you trust through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to know you as a true, loving father. And maybe your experience with your, with your earthly father was horrible. And that's why I say that our earthly relationships can be a distortion because that may limit how you see God as a father. Maybe you see him as, as, as a perfectionist who's always watching and waiting to see you mess up. That's not God. And that's why he calls the church to live better stories, to live better examples of human relationships so that we present a more accurate picture of who God is. For us as parents, the goal of parenting is to raise our children to know and to love God and discover his plan and purpose for their life and to be equipped to live it out. Therefore, success is not financial or educational. It's not even good behavior. All of those things are important, but what good does it do if our child gains the whole world and forfeits their soul? We need to make sure we have the right priorities because when the Holy Spirit does fill us, he will produce a spirit-transformed family and society. And here's, here's how maybe this will help it connect. What God calls human parents to do is to represent, and sometimes you need to take words, especially in English, and you need to break them down. When we use the word represent, it means to represent. That's just what the word means. We need to restate what is true through our lives. Here's what that means. We are to represent God as provider. That's part of our responsibility as parents. We are to represent God as the nurturer by loving and building up our children. We are to represent God as righteous by the example of our lives. And that's why it's so important for us to be humble as parents. Parents, let me tell you, one of the most important things you can do is when you're wrong, make sure you apologize to your children and ask for forgiveness. 
it's incredibly important for them to see your heart and to be vulnerable. We are to represent God as truth. Our children need to see that we live on a truth based upon God's word and not just the culture around us, not just the things that we think, not just our education, but the truth of who Jesus Christ is as creator, as king, as Lord. We are also to represent God as the plan and purpose for our children's life. Now, here's the thing. All those things that I just listed, those, are, those sound overwhelming. You're already overwhelmed as a parent. I mean, it's hard enough just to get, you know, especially when they're little, just to get them ready to go to school. I realize that. And then when they're older, it's like an earthquake to get them out of bed. I understand We've been there. We had four teenagers at the same time. I understand. But it's not easy. In fact, it's impossible, except when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because here's the thing you need to make sure you do not forget. God chose you to be their parent. He didn't make a mistake. He's not asking you to compare yourself to other parents and how they do it. Because it may not work. They don't have the same children, and they're not the same person. You don't have to do it the way they do it. You have to do it the way the Holy Spirit tells you, and God's Word instructs you to do it. He can make it incredibly successful and joyful. Now, I can promise you, I've failed, and my, if my kids were here, even though they're all adults now, they could give you lists of ways that I messed it up. But God is gracious. He was gracious to me. He'll be gracious to you. So, how does the Holy, well, the Holy Spirit um, work through us? And I'm going to skip a little bit here and move down to, to spiritual transformed parenting. Ephesians 6.4 says, fathers, and it includes mothers, so parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, um, when we first read those words, it almost looks like he's saying the same thing twice. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. But he's using two very different words in the original language to illustrate a balance, Spiritual transformation uh, in parenting requires balance. The word translated discipline means correction. It's learning restraint so that we honor God. The second word, instruction, is an exhortation. It is a call to action to become who God made them to be. We need both of those things. We need restraint and we need a calling that lifts them up to see that God has made them more than they think they are. He's calling them to be his sons, his daughters. And, and in that balance, we've got to ask the Lord to show us how to live it. And, and here's the thing. I'll give you um, some encouragement. It's not going to be the same with all of your children because they're unique. The balance will look different depending upon the child. And where they are, it, it will change over time as well. So don't just rely on go, okay, here's how I'm going to be a dad. Here's how I'm going to be a mom. 
and I've got these sets of rules, most of which I learned or I patterned from my parents, or I'm reacting against the way they did something and I've chosen to do it a different way. Instead, seek the Holy Spirit to show you how to parent each child and to have that balance. Because the, the truth is both law, that control, and liberty or license can be extremes that can provoke anger and frustration in our children. And here's how it affects expectations. Legalism, law, requires external obedience, but not necessarily a transformation of the heart. It's simply changing of behavior. License alone can love a child so much that she or he, um, it doesn't require any kind of change in behavior. Just do whatever you want. Neither one of those really in their expectations that we set will accomplish transformation and speak truth into the life of our children. In communication, legalism talks a lot about what a child should or should not be doing but does not adequately address the child's identity. We need to make sure that we reinforce that. On the other hand, just total liberty or license talks a lot about identity and is concerned with self-esteem but does not adequately speak of the actions that flow from one's identity and how we are to treat others. There's a balance that has to be in place between the two. So here's maybe a way to, to hopefully put it together. The goal of spirit-transformed parenting is to be gospel-based and not just behavior modification. Behavior-based parenting emphasizes the things that we're against. Here are the rules. Don't break any of them. And it teaches a fear of wrong. It calls for duty in our children. And it responds to sin in our children with anger. It speaks of outward conformity and ultimately comes down to control. Now, here's the thing. If that's the only picture you have of God, because remember, we're supposed to be representing what God is like to our children. That's a distorted view of God. We're only seeing the rules and not the relationship. God calls us to something higher as his people. He calls us to gospel-based parenting, which does emphasize who we are for. Your children need to know you are for them. You believe in them. You see in them amazing potential. And not only that, already great accomplishment. It teaches a desire to do what is right, not just a fear of what is wrong. It inspires their heart to delight in God, to find that he truly is their source of intimacy, of peace, of significance. And instead of responding to sin in our children with anger, it responds with grief because we're broken for where their behavior, their choices, their attitudes are leading them. It seeks belief that leads to obedience, not just conformity. And it produces a spiritual transformation. Ultimately, it points them to Jesus Christ, to who they are in him. That's what he's calling us to do. 
And gospel-based parenting focuses both on the problem of sin and the solution of Christ and produces transformation. It can change the heart that drives our behaviors. It aims towards wisdom to help children desire to honor God. It targets helping a child discover who they are in Christ and living out of his identity. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And oftentimes that is interpreted, well, if I just set all the right rules when they're young, even if they go astray in the middle, at some point they'll come back to it. With that verse, when it says in the way that they should go, it literally means in the bend or the bent of who God made them to be. It's a picture of a, of a recurved bow, an archer's bow, that, that a person will look at the piece of wood and they'll see how it is naturally shaped and how it is designed to be used so that they can then shape that into a bow that can have an arrow that then can be launched effectively. We need to ask the Lord to show us how each of our children are uniquely shaped by him. Too often, and I've been guilty of this as well, we try to relive our life through our children instead of discovering who God made them to be. But when we're seeking that, there becomes great liberty for us to discover that God's given an incredible treasure far greater than we ever could have imagined in our children in seeing who he made them to be and helping them discover their passions, their drives, their desires, and allowing the Lord to shape them. It's a beautiful thing. Spirit-transformed parenting needs to be missional in helping a child discover the purpose for which God has created them. It's more than the job that they will do. It's more than the financial security. It's more than the education they will get. It's discovering who God made them to be. That's what he calls us to do. And a spirit-transformed parent seeks to guide a child to their own faith and diligently pursue knowing God and making him known. Now, one last thing before I wrap up today. If you're to look ahead to the very next subject that is dealt with in the book of Ephesians, it is spiritual warfare. Now, our first response is Paul's just checking off his list of all the things he wants to cover. I don't think that's true. I think he puts spiritual warfare right there after these relationships of marriage, of parenting, and even of the workplace because he realizes that's where the battlefield really is. That we have an enemy that is trying to break apart marriages, that is trying to break apart families, break apart relationships. And so part of our work as parents is to train our children spiritually for spiritual warfare. We'll look at that on September 1st in the passage there in Ephesians 6. But let me give you just these, these things the art of spiritual warfare training. All warfare is based on deception. Sun Tzu in the art of war back in the 6th century nailed this point. He said, 
if you know your enemies and know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. If you do not know your enemies but do know yourself, you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemies nor yourself, you will be imperiled in every single battle. So we need to understand the attack of the enemy and we need to understand ourselves, who we are called to be in Christ. And so there's, there's an art to practicing spiritual warfare in our, in our families and in our lives personally. This applies to us individually. That art is A-R-T. Acknowledge the lie. This is so important because Satan's tactic in your life, in your children's life, in your spouse's life, and the people around you is to deceive them. He substitutes lies for God's truth. He will present lust in the place of love. He will make you think that that is what will lead to intimacy when it doesn't. He will replace, um, take vanity in the place of finding our acceptance in God rather than in the world. The lie is if we perform well or look beautiful, then we'll have worth. Instead of God saying, you're worth so much, I gave everything for you. That's the truth. The lie in pride is that pride takes the place of God's purpose for our lives and substitutes them with our own. Pride will say, if I just receive more compliments, then I would be more confident. If I could just, if people could just see how great I am, then I'll feel like I'm better than I am. In the same way, anger often takes the place of trusting in God's control and God's goodness. The lie says, Anger will get me what I want instead of seeking the Lord and what he wants. So we need to acknowledge where the deception is in our life that's coming against us, that's in our own mind or in the minds of our children. Help them discover where there is a false belief. Then secondly, the R is to repent, to turn from the lie to truth. We need to do an about face. Truth is where our real identity in Christ is found. We must teach our children that who they are uh, and not what they do or how well they do it, it, um, who they are is determined by God alone and not by the world, not by their peers, not by their accomplishments or by their wealth or by their intelligence. They are worth far more than all those things combined They are worth the very heart of God. We need to replace the lie with truth. And then finally, the T is trust the Savior and his promises. The greatest way to battle against falsehood in our lives is to claim a promise that comes from God's word, to look it up and see what he says about that area and memorize it, meditate on it, and make it a part of who we are so that we're living our life based on truth. The beautiful thing is that when the Holy Spirit fills us and we allow him to guide us as parents, it leads to spiritual transformation for generations. You need to remember it's not just about the now. You're forming a legacy 
in your children and in your children's children and in their children of truth that can transform not only their lives, not only their family, but the world around them. That's a lot to do, and we can't do any of it unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, well, would you speak to our hearts right where we are? Because we need you. I need you. Lord, I, reckon, I look and see how many times I failed, both in marriage and in parenting, the selfishness in my own life. Lord, I thank you for your grace. That it just reminds me how desperate we need you. So Lord, I pray you would encourage the hearts of husbands and wives today. You would encourage the hearts of parents today. They won't leave here feeling burdened as if they messed up. They will leave here expectant because the truth is when we are filled with your presence and all you ask to do is come to you and say, Lord, I just lay myself down. I want you to be, I want to be filled with you and what you want for my life. Then you provide the way to accomplish all that you call us to do. Lord, you're a resource that is infinite. Lord, you have all the wisdom to teach us how to love one another. You have all the wisdom, all the resources we need to show us how to care for our children and to build them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in that balance. Lord, all those reservoirs, all that treasure is in you. And what you're really doing in all these things is not saying, hey, this is where you messed up. You're saying, come to me and be refreshed so that I can pour my life into your relationships and they can be transformed so that your marriage represents who I am as a husband redeemer who loves them, who loves you. So that your role as parents can reflect the security of knowing a father who is for us and who is immeasurably good. Oh, Lord, show us your goodness because our hope is not in our abilities. Our hope is not in changing or in learning principles. Our hope is in Christ alone. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.